One who feeds, he supports his wife via a third party. So he himself does not eat with her, perhaps he doesn't live with her, but he basically gives the responsibility of supporting her to somebody else. He provides for it all, but he's not the one who gives it to his wife and he does not eat with her. There's a discussion whether any husband is allowed to do this. It might be only if he works in another city, or if he learns in another city, or perhaps she agrees to this, in which case it would be okay. Now, in a case where she eats with him, so whatever he regularly eats, that's what he needs to provide for her. So if he happens to only eat bread and salt and water every meal, so that's what he would give to her. But in this case, where they're not eating together, he has to give her what a regular person requires. He cannot give her any less than two kav of wheat. A kav is equivalent to 24 beitzim. A beitzim is the size of an egg, so two kav is 48 beitzim. Now, in the average meal, one would eat three beitzim, which means that 48 beitzim is essentially enough for 16 meals. 16 times three beitzim is 48 beitzim. Now, in the times of the Mishnah, they would eat two meals a day, and on Shabbos, three meals. So in one week, she would really need 15 meals. That's two meals a day from Sunday to Friday, and then three meals on Shabbos. However, we're going to see later on in the next Mishnah that the husband is obligated to eat with her once a week on Shabbos for one of the meals. And we're talking about what he provides for her when he's not with her. So really he would only need to provide for her two meals for Shabbos, so she should require 14 meals a week and not 16, but the Gemara explains that we give her two extra meals in order that if poor people come begging at her door, she'll have something to give them. So that is two kav of wheat for her to be able to turn into bread. Or he could give, instead of giving wheat, he could give double the amount of barley. Four cup of barley. Barley was worse quality. So four cup of barley would be equivalent to two cup of wheat. Although the truth is, on Rabbi Yaisi, Rabbi Yaisi said, The only one who would give a double amount of barley was Rabbi Yishmael, because he lived near Edoim, and in the area where he lived, the barley was particularly bad quality. But in general, if one is giving her barley, he does not need to give her double the amount, because it is not such bad quality. He should give her half a cup of beans, half a leg of oil. A leg is a liquid measurement, and she needs oil, both for cooking and for lighting candles. The cup of and a cup of dried figs, or a mona, which is a weight of pressed figs. A kav is a measurement of volume. A mona is a measurement of weight, and the reason why the Mishnah is talking in terms of weight now is because in general that's what they would use when talking about pressed fig cakes. They would be sold by weight. Then Einloi, if he does not have these dried or pressed figs, then He needs to fix for her and provide for her produce from another place, meaning other types of produce, other fruit. So this is in terms of the food which he must provide for her. What about other provisions, such as clothes and other living necessities? So Venosin lo mito needs to give her a bed, a mattress, and a sort of mat, some sort of thick sheet, which she would generally put on top of the mattress. Venosin lo kipolo he needs to give her some sort of scarf or veil for her head, v'chagor lo and an apron. For her waist, meaning when she's working or cooking, she's got an apron. And shoes for every one of the Sholosh Regolim. 
And we're talking about a time and a location where one's shoes would wear out very quickly. So she would require three pairs of shoes a year. And since he needs to give her three times a year, it is better and preferable to give it to her for each of the Yom Toivim, Pesach, Shavuos and Sukkot, so that she'll start and she'll have new shoes for Yom Tov, and that would be an honor for the Yom Tov. The Kalim Shul Chamishim Zuz Mishon Lashana and clothes worth 50 zuz each year. One shouldn't give her new clothes for the summer, and worn-out clothes for the winter. In the summer, having new clothes is much heavier and hot, and in the winter, if it's worn out, then it doesn't warm her up properly. Rather, he should give her new clothes worth 50 zuz in the winter, so that she'll have good warm clothes which will warm her up during the winter. And she'll wear those clothes which would have worn out by then during the summer. And she can always keep the worn out clothes. Even when it reaches the next winter and her husband gives her new clothes, she doesn't need to return the old clothes, she can keep those. And this is an order that she'll wear the old worn out clothes during the times that she is Tome as a nidah. And it is a woman who becomes Tomei once a month. And it's more appropriate that she wear different clothes during that period whilst she is Tomei. So this way, if she keeps the old clothes, she'll have those available for when she is Tomei. Mr. Tess, we learnt earlier on in this parak and the previous parak that the support which a husband needs to do and give to his wife, in return for that, he receives her Maisiodayim. That which she makes and sows, and that which she earns. And we're going to see in this Mishnah that there is a fixed amount which she needs to make for him. And if she makes more than that amount, then that also goes to her husband. And in return for that extra amount of Maisei Odayim, which would go to the husband, he is obligated to give her a certain amount of money every week that she can spend on whatever she wants. There's always small needs which she finds and she needs money for. So, He must give her each week a Mo'ah, of silver for her various needs. A mo'a is a sixth of a dinar, a sixth of a zuz. So to put things in perspective, the kasuba is 200 or 100 zuz, which is actually a very large amount. And she would be receiving each week a sixth of a zuz. Alright, and as we mentioned in the previous mission of she eats with her husband each Friday night. Even a husband who wishes to support her via a third party, he does need to eat with her once a week on Friday night. One of the reasons being is that this is the night of the week when one is supposed to have relations with his wife, or at least certain people, perhaps just Tamid Chachomim, that would generally be the night that they would have relations with their wife. And therefore he should eat with her that night. If he does not give her this mo'a of silver, sixth of a dinar for her needs, then the extra amount of which she makes, because as we explained, one is in return for the other. Now he's not allowed to do this, but if he does do it, for example, if she agrees to it, then she would no longer need to give her that extra amount of Maisiodayim. Now what is considered extra? Umahi Aisalai. What does she need to make for him so that we'll know what is considered to be extra and above that? Mishkal Chomish Sloim Shesi Yehuda, the weight of five sela of Shesi, an area called Yehuda, Shein Esra Sloim Bagolil, which is equivalent to ten sela in the Golil. A sela is a weight, and they measured it differently in different locations. And Shesi refers to the threads. When one is weaving, there are Shesi threads and Erev threads. And in fact, the Mishnah continues now. Oi Mishkal Esra Sloim Erev Yehuda, or she can make the weight of ten sela 
of Erev threads in Yehuda, Shein Esrim, Selaim, Bagolel, which is equivalent to 20 Sela in the Golel. And these are the two types of threads which one would weave together. The Shesi is the thinner threads which would go lengthways, and the Erev were thicker threads which would go widthways. And because it was thicker, so it was easier to make. It was easier to spin the wool for that purpose. And that's why if she is doing Erev, if she's making Erev threads, then she would need to make more of them. So this is the minimum amount which she needs to do for him. And any extra from that, that is in return for the Mo'okesef. So if he does not give her that money each week, then she would not need to give him the extra amount which she happens to make. If she was nursing a child, then we reduce the amount that she has to make. And we also increase the amount that he needs to give her of food. Because when she is nursing, she herself needs more food. And the mission now tells us that when are these words said, all of the amounts that we have mentioned in the past, two Mishnayas, but Oni should be Israel. That is referring to a poor man in the Jewish people. He needs to provide for her what the average person requires and eats and lives with, even if he himself lives with less. Because as we explained, since he is not with her, living with her or eating with her, so he can't expect her to have what he is having. Rather, he needs to give her what the average woman would have. But somebody who is more respected and he's wealthier, and he has the wherewithal to provide her with more than that. It all depends on his honor. Meaning if, meaning if he is used to a more lavish lifestyle, then he would need to provide the same for his wife. He can never support his wife with less than what he is used to. Sometimes he might need to give her more, but never less. Perik Aleph. When somebody damages or injures somebody else, the Mishnah in the 8th Perik of Bavakama lists five different payments which he must pay him. The question is, what happens when somebody injures a woman? To whom does he need to pay those five things? To the woman herself or to her husband? And the Mishnah is only going to discuss two out of five of the payments because the law regarding them is not obvious. However, regarding three of them, the Mishnah doesn't even discuss since it is, relatively speaking, obvious to whom he would be obligated to pay. So firstly, Tsar, for the pain which he caused her, certainly she would receive all of the money for that. The husband doesn't have any rights over her pain. She felt all of the pain, and so she would receive all of the compensation for that. Another one of the payments is for Sheves. Sheves refers to making him unemployed, or for the amount of time which he's not able to work after being injured, so he won't earn money. So the person who injured him would need to compensate for that. So in our case, where he injured the woman, anything which she makes and earns, all of her mice or dime go to her husband. So her husband is the one who is losing out by her not being able to work. So the payments for Sheves would go entirely to the husband. And the third payment, which isn't mentioned in the Mishnah, is Ripui which is the doctor fees, and that would go towards healing her. So possibly it might go via the husband, since he's the one who's obligated to provide for curing her, but of course he would need to spend that money on healing her, so it doesn't really go to him, it goes to the doctor effectively. Now there are two remaining payments, and that is Nezek, or Pagam, that refers to the amount that she went down in value due to the injury. And that is measured by if she were to be sold as a slave, how much she was worth before the injury, 
and how much she's worth after the injury. How much did the injury lower her value if she were to be sold as, as a slave? So that's how much she would have to pay for the nezek, also known as pagam. And the fifth payment is boishes, which is the shame and the embarrassment which was caused to her. So we'll see in the middle of this Mishnah, we'll discuss that. But firstly, the Mishnah says, Mitziasa Isha, as we've seen earlier on, that which a woman finds, or Maisi Odeha, and that which she makes and earns, Lebaila, that all belongs to her husband, Virushasa, that which she inherits, whether she inherited it before they got married, or if she inherited it even after they got married. So this inheritance belongs to her. It's her property. However, he is able to eat the products of that inheritance during her life. As we learned earlier on in the fourth parak, if let's say she has a field or something, so any of that produce which grows there, all of the benefits which come from that property, the husband has. And then once she dies, so he would inherit the entire field as well. Now says the Mishnah, Boshta, payments for her embarrassment and her shame, Ufugoma, and the payment for the amount that she went down in value, if somebody injured her, Shela. According to the Tanakama, they both belong to her, because at the end of the day, she was the one who was embarrassed, and she was the one who went down in value. However, Abihudimimbeseira says that when she is injured and when she gets embarrassed, that also affects her husband. So there's one Shabbat Seyser in a situation where somebody injured her in a private place, which people can't see, or if they embarrassed her privately, then Losh Nechalokim, she would receive two-thirds of the payment, and he would receive one-third of the payment. She received most of the embarrassment, and her injury affects her mostly. However, at the end of the day, the husband is still affected, so he receives a little bit. But in a time, in a situation, where she was embarrassed or injured in an open place, so by embarrassment, it was it happened in front of lots of people, it was in public, or she was injured in a place which everyone can see, for example, her face. So this possibly affects the husband even more. He would get two-thirds of the payment, and she would only get one-third. When she is embarrassed in public, this also is a shame on her husband. And if she is injured, then she also becomes less desirable for her husband. So her husband suffers as a result of this. And so he would receive two-thirds of the payments for the boshes and the pagam. And the Mishnah elaborates, Shaloi, the payment which is due to him, Yad, needs to be given to him Im- immediately, and it's considered to be his totally, Shaloi. And the payments which are due to her, anything owned by a woman, the husband has rights to its pay rates, to its products and its benefits. Now, if it's just money or something, so he's not going to gain anything from there, and therefore that which she receives, karka, it has to be used to buy land, and then there'll be trees, etc., which are there in the land, and he would eat the produce which grows there. So even that which goes to her, he benefits from the pay rates of the property which is bought from that money. And this part of the Mishnah is according to everybody, and it applies whenever a woman receives money. Mishnah Bates, the remainder of the Perek discusses the Nadunya. The Nadunya is the dowry, the money or the property which a woman brings into the marriage from her father, and it is considered to be a proper, encouraged practice that fathers of women who are of maritable age should promise a nadunya that whoever marries her will receive such an amount of money or property which she'll bring into the marriage and that way it will be easier for her to get married. Now in the final paragraph of the Masechta we're going to see a machleikes regarding the father of a bride who promised a nadunya to his son-in-law 
and he performed Kiddushin on that woman. But b- before they got married fully and went through the stage of Nisuin, his father-in-law, the father of the bride, went back on his word. We're going to see Machlikes later on at the end of the Masechta, whether he is able to do that at all. It could be that the son-in-law is able to say, I'm not going to marry your daughter unless you give me the Nadunya. So that's a discussion later on. But for now, the Mishnah says, If somebody fixes an amount of money which is going to give to his son-in-law as the Nadunya, and then Umeis Chasonai, his son-in-law dies during the Erisin period, before they have fully married, and now there is an obligation of Yibum on that dead man's brother. Once a man performs Kedushin or gets married to a woman and then dies without children, there is a mitzvah on his brother to marry to perform Yibum on that dead man's wife. So this woman now falls to the dead man's brother, and he's going to marry her. And really that marriage is considered to be a continuation of the previous marriage. So the question is, is the father-in-law obligated to give the nadunya in the same way as he obligated himself to give the nadunya to the son-in-law who now died? The father is able to say, To your brother I wanted to give this Nadunya, but to you I don't want to give the Nadunya. And his promise of the Nadunya to the other brother, who has now died, does not obligate him towards this brother, because the understood agreement of the Nadunya is that if you end up marrying my daughter, then I'll give you the Nadunya. But until the stage of the full marriage, he's not obligated to give an Nadunya. So now that the man to whom he promised the Nadunya died, nothing obligates him regarding that Nadunya.